0: Today on The Explorers Club, we have a very special guest. Her name is Allie Ward, and she gets super excited about science. Just listen to her explain why birds have feathers. So feathers
1: are kind of an outgrowth, an adaptation from scales. Isn't that nuts?
0: Allie has a podcast called Ologies, where she talks to scientists about their work. Ology means the study of something like... Ornithology. The study of birds. Somnology. The study of sleep. Scatology. The study of poop. Lepidopterology? Lepidopterology. Oh my goodness, that is a hard one. It means the study of moths and butterflies. We explore all kinds of ologies with Allie. Somnology, gastroegyptology, even penguinology. My name is Kate. Explore with me on Explorers Club! Club. Well, let's get started here with your podcast ologies. Who is the most important, interesting person you've talked to who who just blows your mind? Oh, you know, I've
1: talked to so many great people. One of my favorites, I spoke to someone named Dr. Merlin Tuttle, who already out of the gate has such a great name. <laughs> uh, Merlin Tuttle just wins based on name alone, but he is a chiropterologist
0: what which
1: if you had to guess what that is, what would you say?
0: Um, Cairo. Cairo. Something with, with um, air, planes, Cairo, um, gyro. No, I don't know.
1: Right? It's tough. It's so fun to break the words down. But um, So a chiropterologist is Cairo means hand, huh. like a chiropractor. And then Pater, like a pterodactyl. So that means hand wing, and he studies bats. So oh. bats are chiropterology because they have – hand wings. And he was amazing. He is such an advocate for bats. Bats are our friends and they do great things for us. And he has some great stories about when he has been spelunking in caves over the last 30 years. So he's amazing. I love him.
0: Wow. Did you go with him at all? Did you see him? I (laughs) didn't know.
1: I didn't, but he had some good stories. You know, I didn't expect to get those kind of like Indiana Jones adventure stories. Mm -hmm. In the field, He's going to strap on a headlamp and go spelunking. He's gotten, you know, um, caught down the wrong side of caves. He had to make friends with moonshiners in the mountains who, you know, uh, oh. were aware of his work. But he's and he's just such a friend to bats. A lot of times bats get a bad rap and, uh, and he's quite the defender of bats. He's down in Austin where there are a ton of cave systems in Austin underground. And that's why they have such a great bat population, because the bats just kind of go wiggle in the caves at
0: night. We heard from Daryl, who called in, couldn't stay with us, and says, Ologies, your podcast is awesome. You did one on yeast that was really interesting. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us about it?
1: Yeah, you know what, I've actually now I've done two on yeast, I realized. Um, I did Zymology, which is the study of beer making. And then I just did like last week was gastroegyptology which is <laughs> gastro coming from eating in the stomach and Egyptology. So um, there was someone named Seamus Blackley, who is out here in LA, and he is amazing. He is a particle physicist. But yes, so yeast are fungus, they're single celled. And they are responsible for the way that our bread tastes and how it rises. And so I spoke with Seamus Blackley about working with archaeologists to get a, just a few yeast cells from pots that were 4,000 years old Wow. Um, from Egypt. And then kind of um worked with microbiologists to culture those yeasts and then baked bread with it. And so, um, the cool thing about yeast is we have no idea how long they can live. They might be immortal, but if they can be resurrected from 4,000 years ago, if anyone out there is baking bread and your starter looks like it's dying, don't worry. If James <laughs> Blackley can resurrect it from 4,000 year old pots, like you'll figure yours out.
0: Why does the sour taste come into sourdough? How do you make sourdough bread?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. And so for years, for thousands and thousands of years, bread was sourdough. It just was because the sour in sourdough comes from a bacteria, a lactobacillus bacteria. So the yeast and the lactobacillus work together and the yeast gives off lactic acid when it eats your flour. And so it gives it that tang and that sour taste, kind of like a yogurt. And um, so for years, the way that we would get yeast is we would just leave flour and water out. And what would naturally consume that would come and hang out on it and say, thanks so much for the flour. Nom, 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 <laughs> nom, 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 nom. Um, I think that maybe that's why some people have a harder time digesting certain kinds of bread, but sourdough is easier on your stomach because the yeast and the bacteria have broken down the bread kind of for you um, before you eat it. So a lot of people who might have, uh, you know, tummy troubles eating bread can, can uh, hang with sourdough pretty easily.
0: We have a call from Janie joining us from Elkhorn. Hi, Janie. What's your question? I purchased a, uh, a butterfly house for my granddaughters this past winter, and um, I would like to know the best source of caterpillars in order for them to watch them develop into butterflies.
1: Ooh, oh, that's amazing. Awesome grandma move.
0: Yeah. Allie, what do we know about butterflies?
1: Oh, I love butterflies. Um, I interviewed my friend Phil Torres, who is a lepidopterologist, and uh, and moths and butterflies, y'all, a lot of people don't realize moths came first, and then came flowers, and then evolved butterflies in their colorful way to be um, uh, more daytime-dwelling forms of moths. So uh, some moths are original. Um, but what I would say, if you've got a butterfly house and you're looking for um, for some citizens and some, some folks to live in it who are caterpillars, uh, if you've got um, access to milkweed, I would say plant local milkweed. That is what monarch butterflies love to eat. And um, uh, if you can find the species of local milkweed, Just ask your nursery or check online. You will have so many chubby little monarch butterfly Mm. caterpillars. And they're beautiful. They're black and white and yellow striped with these what look like little antennas. But um, they're awesome. And their chrysalis is beautiful. It's kind of mint color with gold. So, yeah, I would say plant milkweed. Milkweed is actually a little bit toxic to birds, and so monarch caterpillars are just chowing down. I mean, they can, you should see monarch caterpillars on milkweeds, wow, they can go, they can go to town. They're like me with a box of cereal. They're just like, (laughs) let's have a little more. And so, um, but they have a certain toxicity and a bitterness so that when birds eat them, they're like, oh, no, no, thank you.
0: Why do butterflies have such colorful and pretty patterns on their wings?
1: That's a great question. Um, Because they evolved to be more daytime dwelling and rather than moths who are out more at night, they have to blend in with their food sources a lot. And so they need to be on flowers and blend in so that they're not predated by birds.
0: Ellie, let's get back into the questions now. We have a question from Brody in Sun Prairie wants to know, why do dogs bark?
1: It's a great question. Um, Same reason why we're chatting. The same way that Brody asks, why do dogs bark? He's just using his voice to communicate. And so dogs bark to warn each other. They bark to say hello. They bark to tell you they're happy or hungry. And so they bark for so many different reasons, just like we talk for so many different reasons. Hmm. But Uh. most of the time, I think they're mostly, depending on your dog, just asking for belly rubs if your dog is
0: like mine. Or food. Food is also helpful. (laughs) Right.
1: Exactly.
0: There's lots of wiggly teeth out there. I know one of mine uh, is about to, I've got a kiddo with a wiggly tooth. So that has us thinking about teeth. Why do our teeth become loose? Why do we lose them? another good
1: see these are all good questions um you know you obviously you you have a set of baby teeth that are not quite uh, fitted for what your adult skull is going to be and so one thing i think is just bananas to look at is if you ever look at an x-ray of a child's adult teeth they're hanging out in your face face, like (laughs) under your bones. And then they're waiting to sort of um, break down the roots by pushing in and kind of taking over kind of like if you were, um, your friend was taking a selfie and you just kind of moved in and pushed them out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the, um, I think it's such a, a beautiful thing to see how the teeth are in the skull, just kind of waiting in the wings. And so um, in order for that adult tooth to come in, it has to. you have to kind of break the root down so it wiggles and wiggles and wiggles. And then that means that your tooth is just about to come in to that spot. But it's, it's essentially your um, adult tooth pushing out your, your baby teeth.
0: Carson and Eau Claire, I hope you put some of those teeth under your pillow. Maybe the tooth fairy will come. Let's get to another question, Allie. We have Sophia from Sun Prairie who wants to know how can some people be so flexible and others are not flexible at all?
1: Mm. You know, muscles are kind of crazy. Muscles are so cool. So imagine that if you had a bunch of pieces of string and they were all bundled up kind of like a like if you laid out a skein of yarn so that's what your muscles look like a little bit they're made of a bunch of fibers that are together. It's not just one hunk. And so these muscle fibers can stretch and that's what allows you to reach your arm out or whatever. But, um, so your muscle fibers stretch like that, that way you can become flexible. And so some people are flexible because they just stretch them more. And, um, it's kind of like bubble gum. The more you stretch it, the longer it's going to get. And so you can train your muscles to be more flexible by just being consistent with them and stretching those muscle fibers out so that, you know, um, the next day when you want to stretch them again, they're okay, I'm used to this. I have a little bit more flexibility. And so, um, but yeah, they're all a bunch of fibers that are together and some are fast twitch and some are slow twitch, which means that some are good for running short distances really fast and others are good for taking a really long walk.
0: Well, sometimes our muscles don't like it when we stretch them. Can we overdo (laughs) it? And what do they tell us when we overdo it?
1: Oh, you know, um, when you overdo it, what's happening is it's kind of like if a rope were to fray. And so if you've maybe strained a muscle, uh, what your muscle has to do is essentially do a repair job and say, Okay, we got a couple of breaks in here, we gotta fix some stuff. And so um if you've been working out and your muscles hurt the next day, that is your muscle going, Okay, we did a lot of stretching, we use this more than usual, we got a lot of breaks, we gotta fix which is why a lot of athletes will train hard one day and then rest a day uh, because your muscle fibers have to go in and do some maintenance.
0: Here's a, a question I just love. Ariana in Sun Prairie is wondering, does a mattress really affect our sleep?
1: Oh, you know, as someone who had a a really terrible mattress for a long time, I can say anecdotally, yes, very much. (laughs) Um, But, you know, sleep is really interesting because I I interviewed a somnologist, Dr. Chris Winters, who's like a a guru on, on sleep. He's amazing. And, um, you know, what we don't realize is that we wake up a lot during the night naturally. Um, every time you move when you're asleep, if you're rolling over, you're waking up and, um, if you have a mattress that is really uncomfortable and is maybe digging into your back a little bit, and it causes you to shift your position, you're actually waking up when that happens. And so, everyone wakes up a certain number of times during the night. But if you're say doubling or tripling that, you end up losing a good hour or so of sleep um, just by rolling around. And uh, and yeah, that extra hour can can definitely affect whether or not you are feeling foggy the next day.
0: Well, let's move on from sleep to penguins. Allie, you talk to someone who hangs out with penguins all day long. How lucky. Who is that? Oh, you know,
1: Dr. Tom Hart is uh, an Oxford research fellow, and he is a world-renowned penguinologist, self-titled. He says that he named himself that because it gets people interested in penguins. If you just saw <laughs> a seabird expert, you might not care as much. And so, yeah, he's, um, he's in the field four months out of the year in Antarctica and, and uh, surrounding Southern Sea Islands. And so, yeah, he's been studying penguins for over a decade. He's uh, amazing.
0: What has he found out about our favorite penguins? What do they do? Um, you know, they're so fascinating. They're they're
1: all in the southern hemisphere. And what is really interesting about penguins is they're flightless birds, they're flightless seabirds, but they spend the majority of their time in water. And so when we're seeing them waddling around on land, um, you know, they're there to reproduce, to you know, have their eggs in their nests, but when they're in water they're really kind of like flying in water. So they, they use their wings like flippers, but um but they are as graceful in the water as a lot of birds that we see in the air, and I think what 's really weird also about them is that their knees are in their body, so they they have <laughs> knees but they 're up kind of like go, they go all the way up to their ribs essentially, and they have these really some of them have really long necks, but they 're just obscured by feathers and fat and so um they uh, when you look at a skeleton of a penguin, they look a lot different than the the little you know fuzzy potatoes that we see waddling uh-huh. around the ice.
0: They also give pebble gifts. What are these pebble gifts about?
1: Oh, they're about being adorable and cute and amazing. <laughs> but, um, you know, they have to build these nests a little bit uh, off the ground. That way the melt water from the ice doesn't make their egg too cold. And so they need to build these little pebble nests. And so they'll sometimes give each other pebbles as gifts to say like, hey, I'm going to be an amazing architect and parent, you can tell, by, because I you know, combed the beach for this pebble. Um, but sometimes it's portrayed as though they look for one pebble like an engagement ring, and it's not It's not quite that precious. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Tom Hart told me, he said, uh, males and females are both looking for pebbles. They just need a lot of pebbles. But they do sometimes steal each other's pebbles. They're like, oh, it's got some pretty good ones. And then they'll just, boop, before you know it, nab someone else's pebbles.
0: Huh, wow. I know. Well, you know, you, you penguin's gonna penguin. <laughs> well, let's move on to another topic. Sometimes it's a little bit gross, but it's poop. You talked <laughs> with an animal <laughs> expert who works at a zoo and got to visit her special poo freezers. Let's hear a bit of that.
1: I saw a freezer that was kind of like a porta potty on Noah's Ark. This
0: one might be locked, but um yeah. You got to lock up, up your you poop. One. Uh, yes, we keep our our freezers locked. So we have black rhino, pygmy hippo, red river hog, poo, we have some of our octopus stuff in here, our uh, giraffe, our black bear, our Japanese macaque, pygmy solaris, diana monkey, high tamarin, polar bear, that's just what lives in this freezer. Now I have 13 others, we're going to go all around the zoo, we're going to go through (laughs) this one for you. Oh my gosh, 13 freezers full of animal poop. Allie, what's going on?
1: Oh, she is a scatologist, which is a real word. It's someone who studies poop. The reason why there's so much poop on ice in zoos is because it's a lot easier to figure out how an animal's doing by checking out their poop. And so... It's less invasive, rather. So rather than going and taking a blood draw from a tiger, which I don't know about you, would you want to do that?
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: good. Um, you can pick up their poop and then take it to a lab and figure out, okay, how are their stress hormones? How are their reproductive? How well are they doing on digestion? And so, uh, yeah, they, they keep them... As a record, that way they can go back and look and say, okay, well they're doing, um, you know, this this much uh, better with certain hormones than than they were six months ago. So yeah, 13 freezers all around the zoo. They just keep buying freezers. She says she's so lucky because they're they just indulge her um her poop hoarding as she calls it. But um but it's very <laughs> organized. It's like if Marie Kondo were a, a scientist. <laughs> Everything is labeled. It's organized like.
0: My goodness, I love it—a yeah. clearinghouse for for poop. And some mm-hmm. animals, some animals don't really poop at all. Instead, they have these little pellets full of things that they've digested, like animal bones. Tell us about that. Oh, you know, I think it's so interesting.
1: Um, owls will take, you know, what they've eaten, say a mammal, and the undigestible parts, like the hair and the bones, they'll cough up into a ball. I mean, it looks like a like if you cleaned out the lint. Reserve in your dryer, mm-hmm. and then uh, happen to have a fistful of animal bones. But what I used to love as a, as like a shameless nerdy kid is if you'd find a pellet, you could dissect it and then put the bones back together to see what they had eaten, um, and it's pretty gross. But it, I mean, it's essentially. Owl vomit, but it's also a really fun afternoon (laughs) if you're into that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was interesting. In scatology, we learned why rabbits, uh, you know, poop like cocoa pebbles and, and, you know, why other animals don't.
0: Yeah, tell us about rabbit pellet poop. You know, what's in that?
1: Oh, it's so weird and so fascinating. But certain herbivores will poop in pellets. Like, you know how if you've ever been to, like, a petting zoo and a goat will just, like – instead of doing one big doo-doo, they'll just have a bunch of kind of pellets. Um, well, herbivores tend to poop that way because usually if they're at a watering hole and they're drinking, that make, makes them vulnerable to getting eaten. And so they tend to have less water in their systems. Um, just they've evolved to, to drink a little bit less. And so that's why they poop in pellets like that. And, um, and there's also an interesting thing with uh, this is so gross but with um with <laughs> rabbits they have to digest some of their poop twice and so they have certain poops that will come right out and they'll eat them again. Ah. And they're like, whoo, it's a snack." And um Is yeah, that is
0: that for nutrition or why are they doing that? <laughs> they're called
1: cecotropes and um they are Kind of different texture; they're glueier and darker, and their digestive system just needs to break some things down twice. And so, um, it's almost like, uh, why do we, why would we put our fruit in a blender before we drink it and drink a smoothie? Rabbits are kind of the same with some of their poop;
0: <laughs> they just need a oh, second yeah. second pass. Ellie, let's look at birds for a moment. You also had a chat with someone who studies feathers. Why do birds have feathers? Oh, I think
1: this is so interesting. Um, so feathers are kind of an outgrowth and adaptation from scales. Isn't that nuts? Mm-hmm. So like if you think of, um, a reptile or, or maybe you're thinking of a dinosaur, right? They had scales all over their body. And if you think about bird feet, they're scaly as well, right? So birds, which are all living dinosaurs, when they were still dinosaurs, before they could even had even evolved flight, they started their scales in some started kind of transforming into hair-like projections. And so feathers are just a really evolved scale that is used um, for flight. And so I think it's so fascinating. That's why some, you know, that's why when you see chicken feet, they look more like lizard skin.
0: Let's go to Russ now in Stoughton. Hi, Russ. Hi. uh, I had a couple of questions. Uh, You just referred to birds evolving uh, from the dinosaur age. If there were pterodactyls, why didn't they evolve into birds? And the second question is, how is it that uh, snapping turtles, which I'm told are fairly unchanged from the dinosaur age, how did they survive when the dinosaurs uh, did not? Mm.
1: That's a good question. one thing I know about a, about pterodactyls is that they're not dinosaurs, and um, that if you ask a paleontologist if you refer to them as dinosaurs, that's the first thing that they do is correct you. So that's pretty much what I know about them. Um, and I don't know why there it wasn't a lineage from pterodactyls to dinosaurs. That's my guess would be something about the timelines uh, not working out. I have no idea. But what I think is really interesting is there are a lot of creatures that were around before the dinosaurs that are still around. And it may be because like fish survived, uh, you know, the impact crater that killed off the dinosaurs. It might just be because their environments remained uh, more unchanged. So um, being an aquatic animal or being like a burrowing, a deep burrowing animal might have been, um, a way to kind of escape the peril that the dinosaurs went through Mm. because their food sources all kind of disappeared. So yeah, that's why we, there's like sea creatures that are, have predated dinosaurs like sharks.
0: Russ, thank you so much. I don't know how to make a transition here, Allie, but let's talk about (laughs) kissing. You and so many people are going, ew, kissing. So, you know, what do animals do in terms of kissing and why, why do humans kiss?
1: Oh, you know, I talked to an, an expert in this, Dr. Robin Dunbar in Oxford, and humans essentially are just smelling each other when we're kissing. Is we're we're getting a whiff of someone's immune system and their health, and so kissing is a way to figure out how healthy are you and is your immune system going to be um, kind of a boon if we were to have children? Would they have a robust immune system? And there are. Few primates that even kiss. I just talked to, um, to a behavioral uh, primatologist, essentially, who was saying that humans kiss way more than orangutans and, uh, and chimpanzees. And so, yeah, we kiss to, to check each other out. Kind of like like, you know, what you see dogs doing in the park. They hmm. go the other end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what about the germs? When humans kiss each other, they share germs. Is that good for our immune systems?
1: You know, I think to to a certain extent, yes. I think, um, you know, obviously, maybe not now. Perhaps now is not a good time to start kissing strangers, but um, clearly. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I talked to a really great microbiologist who talked a lot about gut biomes and um, what is in our stomachs and all of the little critters that live in our stomachs can can play a big part in our overall health. And so having a very... um, robust microbiomes can actually be really good for you. Um, but yeah, we're, we're certainly exchanging, I, I forget how many it is, but it's an absolutely staggering number like something like 80, maybe like 80 million or something, um, microbes in, in a kiss. So something major like that, but evolutionarily, um, clearly it's, it's, it's been helpful for
0: us well you better want that kiss then well let's look at fear <laughs> you talk to a fearologist which is another fun word and you learned that we feel fear a lot of the time
1: we're scared all the time someone almost spills a slurpee on your new shirt uh no one in the group chat responded to your meme you have to buy a gift for your sister but she might not like it we're scared all the time we're scared all the time and it turns out for kind of weird reasons is that really true, Allie? Well, yeah, you know, every time you are nervous or or have you said, you know, to anyone recently that you're anxious about something like a a presentation or, you know, a party or something. Or maybe the uh, pandemic. The pandemic. Yeah, that's all that's all fear. Um, And you have this little thing that's like an almond shaped um, structure in your brain called an amygdala. And, um, we've on ologies, we've just started calling it the screaming almond of terror (laughs) lives in your brain. And essentially it's responsible for making you feel fear that way you can use, um, fight or flight, you know, um, your adrenaline kicks in and, and all of that, and you can escape a situation if you need to. And that is really handy if you have a bear chasing you, but it might not be so handy if you just, you know, have a you're nervous about, um, you know, what your outfit is to, to a party or something. So, um, so yeah, we feel fear a lot. And one thing I think is really interesting is we don't always register it as fear. Sometimes it, we think that we're angry about something, but really we're afraid Um, and you just have to recognize that you're afraid and ask yourself, what are you actually afraid of? And a lot of times when you unravel it, you'll realize that, you know, if someone hurt your feelings or maybe your, um, your partner didn't like the soup you made, what is really happening is you're just afraid that you won't be accepted, um, which I think also in in a pandemic, a lot of us have very very real fears, mm, yeah. and so to um to just recognize that that's what you're what you're going through, and to tell your amygdala, thank you very much, I appreciate what you're doing. Right now, I'm safe, I'm at home. Thank you. We'll you know, we can deal with that fear when it comes up again. You know. Yeah. In more concrete terms.
0: Allie, mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it was such a pleasure pleasure to be here i love wisconsin so um so Uh hello to everyone out there i've loved every time i've come to visit hopefully i'll come back soon
0: The Explorers Club is brought to you by Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm your host, Kate Archer-Kent. This podcast was produced by Colleen Leahy and Brad Kohlberg. Carl Christensen wrote our music. Our executive producer is Molly Stentz. Do you like this episode? Let us know. We're at kids at WPR.org. You can find more episodes at WPR.org slash kids and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. Sayonara.